to be back in your ear holes. Welcome to Tour Guide Tell All. We are your friendly neighborhood tour guides in Washington, D.C. Uh, I'm Rebecca. I'm Becca. And, and we, we are the Rebecca's. the Rebecca's. Sometimes we're really good at that. and Sometimes we're not so good at that. <laughs> that's how you know this is real. Sorry, that's how we know it's real. Yeah. Live. <laughs> We are your friendly neighborhood tour guys. We want to talk to you guys about all things fabulous and wonderful and interesting, uh, somewhat scandalous, sometimes not about uh, American history. And this is our first episode in February, which means it's the beginning of Black History Month. And we're doing it right here at Tour Guide Tell All. We're going to have a month of content for you guys about African-American history. Some people who may not be as well known and celebrated, but are still really excellent and fascinating. And so we have decided to start with one of our most favorite places. We're going to talk about the African-American experience at our Arlington National Cemetery. And spoiler alert, there's so many people we're going to talk about on this pod that could easily and probably will be their own separate pod at some point because there's so many interesting stories. And by no means is this an expansive or all-inclusive look at even African-Americans at Arlington National Cemetery, let alone notable African-Americans at Arlington National Cemetery. This is just a taste to give you an idea of some of the important bits of African-American history there. So so don't think of this as everything at all. This is probably one of several pods we'll do in this theme. In fact, if you've been a listener of the pod, you might know that we did an episode a little while back on some World War II figures. So I encourage you to check that out. And we did a special interview with our friend Erin Miller about WASPs, the Women Auxiliary Group to the Air Force. And she talked a little bit about her grandmother's experience and being late trusted Arlington. So if you're interested in military history, we have a couple other past episodes. We'll drop them in the show notes. That's the thing about Arlington. You can talk about World War One history, World War II history, aviation history, African-American history, Latinx history, women's history. There's so many cool things and interesting people at Arlington that we can't possibly cover it all because it's just immense. But we're going to start. We're going to try. We're going to do a little chip. We're going to, yeah, we're going to, we're going to give it the old college try. Now, I think before we talk about Arlington National Cemetery, we need to acknowledge that the land that is today Arlington National Cemetery was not always a national cemetery. It was a private home and most notably sort of becomes the Custis Lee estate. George Washington Park Custis, who is Martha Washington's grandson, is going to establish a plantation home on property, in fact, even more land that is Arlington today. Um, So about 1,100 acres of land along the Potomac River. So this is a sizable plantation that he will have and pass down to his daughter, Mary Anna. She will marry her childhood sweetheart, Robert E. Lee. So it becomes the Custis Lee estate. Now, those are not the only people who live there. It's not just George Washington Park Custis and his wife and kids and, and Robert E. Lee. This is a home to enslaved people. George Washington Park Custis inherits enslaved people from his grandmother, Martha, when she passes away. At some point, it's an estimated about 200 enslaved people are spread over three plantations, which includes Arlington. It's very hard to get an exact number of how many enslaved people are at Arlington or Custis Lee Plantation at any given time, but usually we're looking at about 60 or so, and that number sort of ebbs and flows over time. 
One particular person I find really interesting is a woman named Maria Syfax. She and her family are going to be there at, or going to be enslaved at the Custis Lee estate. Her husband had actually been enslaved at Mount Vernon, and they were allowed to be married there inside the Mount Vernon parlor, which might tell you that there's something a little special about her, which is that um, George Washington Custis was her father. So Maria Syfax is an illegitimate child between George hmm. Washington, Custis, and Ariana Carter, who was an enslaved woman there. So we see what we see often at these plantations is we see enslavers taking advantage of this opportunity. So Maria Syfax is is mixed. She will ultimately be freed by George Washington Park Custis. So because of her sort of special status, she is freed. And 17 acres of land of what is today Arlington was actually set up to be hers. And the way that she gets freed, I think is really interesting. And it ties into another site that we tour often, which is Old Town Alexandria. She was freed. Um, and I'll kind of put quotations around that because she sold. She sold to a Quaker apothecary. It was the Stabler Ledbetter apothecary. So if you've ever been in Old Town Alexandria, very cl close to Market Square, which was the slave market at the time, there were Quakers who ran an apothecary. And because they were Quakers, they did not practice enslaving and were not supporters of slavery. And what they often did was make purchases and then free the people that they had bought. Um, so it was sort of a way to just kind of dance around the laws of Virginia at the time. So this is how Maria Syfax sort of gets freed. Um, George Washington Park Custis doesn't just write a letter and say you're free. He sells her to someone he knows is going to essentially set her free. And then she gets to come right back and she gets to use that land. When the U.S. government seizes all of the Custis Lee land, though, that included the Syfax land. But the Syfax family was like, we're not leaving. This is our land. It was given to us. We belong here. They didn't recognize her claim to live there until 1866, which was after the Civil War and after there had already been thousands of soldiers buried on this property. What's interesting is the claim that allowed her to keep that claim to the land was signed by Andrew Johnson, who's not someone we would think of as being maybe particularly supportive of this sort of claim. And she was allowed to stay there until her death in 1886. So they basically kind of say, all right, your claim is legitimate and you can stay here. But after you die, we're going to take, take this land and make it federal land. What is really incredible to me is Maria and her husband had 10 children, and they had many children, and they had many children. So there are actually quite a few Syfax descendants in the D.C. area today. They have put in, in the last 30, 40 years, an incredible amount of research and documentation on their family tree, on the experience of enslaved people from the Custis Lee family. And it's really, I think, valuable information to have. So long before we ever have any sort of African-American military history, we have this woman who takes a claim to this land and is able to hold on to it until her death, which I think is pretty impressive. I think that's really impressive. I love that they're, they're still descendants of Maria Syfax. Uh, in the DC area, I think that's really kind of neat. Another person that's to talk about at Arlington, James Parks, who has the really unique distinction of being the only person who's buried at Arlington who was also born there, which is really cool. The Custises are buried there. They weren't born there. And obviously military people were not born in Arlington. So he's the only person, which is really kind of neat. He was born at Arlington, uh, enslaved in 1843. He was owned by uh, George Washington Park Custis, and he was freed as part of the terms of Custis's will, but kind of 
Uh, George Washington Park Custis is going to die in 1857, which is before the Civil War. And it is often said that his uh, son-in-law, Robert E. Lee, inherits the property. Strictly speaking, that is not 100% true. George Washington Park Custis left the estate to his daughter and her husband, Robert E. Lee, but he left it in trust for their oldest son, who's confusingly named Robert E. Lee Jr. And so it actually was never technically Robert E. Lee's property. He lived there for a bunch of his married life, although he was in the military and so was stationed different places, but it was really not ever his property. And he's going to leave in 1861 to go do Confederacy things. So there's only like four years in between George Washington Park Custis's death and Robert E. Lee's leaving defection, shall we say, uh, to the Confederacy. And he never in that whole time did he free James Parks? So James Parks doesn't get freed until 1862, which is after the Union Army has taken over the property. So George Washington Park Custis may have freed him in his will, but whoever executed that will clearly wasn't all that interested in like making that a thing. Parks is going to stay though. After the lease left, he is freed. He's going to stay on at the house and work on the plantation. And they're going to call him Uncle Jim. Uh, and he works for the United States Army. He's going to work there. Once it becomes a, a cemetery in 1864, he's going to start working there and stays there until the 1920s maintaining the grounds, living on the grounds, which is really remarkable. He is going to stay through the Union occupation. He's going to stay once it becomes a cemetery and really sort of devote his life. He never really leaves. In the 1920s, the Park Service, the National Park Service, is going to restore Arlington House, which is the big sort of yellowish mansion at the top of the hill. That's where the Custis family and the Lee family lived. And they're going to decide to restore this in the 1920s. And because Parks, James Parks is still there, he's still alive, he's quite old at this time, but he's going to give a firsthand account of where stuff actually went, where their furniture was and what they had on the walls. And so he proves to be a sort of very invaluable resource about the layout of the home. And when the house is reopened at some point, it's been under construction for a long time, but they actually have about a third is my understanding of the original leaf Custis furniture is actually in the house. The rest of it is period appropriate, but Parks is the one who said, yeah, this goes there. And the, you know, Custis family had this chair over were here and the beds were here and this is this room and so he really does a lot of that really fascinating invaluable on the ground history which i think is really great he's going to pass away in 1929 in his 80s that's a long time we're not math people here but that feels like a very many years Despite having no military experience, the government agreed that he should be laid to rest at Arlington. He's buried with full military honors and he lays that to rest there still, which I think is super appropriate and very awesome. I love his story because it's such a great bridge between the history of the Custis Lee plantation into what has become our most hallowed military cemetery and parks really bridges that gap. It's also just such a great perspective and reminder um, when we think about a lot of these estates, plantations, where there are enslaved people, it is their home. For many people, it's the only home they know. And so you can really feel that with Parks, that he has a connection to the land, the property, the history. Uh, and I, I love that he puts that to work for the United States Army.
I think a nice connection to James Parks is to go ahead and talk a little bit about the Civil War era. So you, the Lee family is going to leave the estate, right? Uh, I loved your choice of defect. They're going to sort of defect out to the Confederacy. The United States Army is going to occupy the land almost immediately because it is prime real estate right along the Potomac River, just across from the nation's capital. They're going to want that land so they can keep an eye on the river and so they can protect the capital city. Can I just interject here? I love the, this is one of the things I mentioned on my tours of Arlington all the time. People are always super like, oh, well, they took over the plantation because they were mad at Robert E. Lee and they wanted to get back at him. And I'm always like, yeah. Yes, that had it was a side benefit that they were really pissed at him and he had turned traitor and that's true. But the real reason they took over the plantation is because Arlington Cemetery is on a hill and it's a very prominent hill. It looks over the Capitol. And if you wheel a cannon, even an 1860 era cannon out to the front of Arlington House and set it off, you would be well within cannon range of every major federal building in Washington, including the White House and the Capitol. So... That was why they took over Arlington, because you got to occupy the high ground in a war. So that's it. Also, the fact that it bothered the Leaf family is probably a good side benefit. Anyway, sorry, continue. I will say Montgomery C. Meggs was a little petty, and I think the Lee connection had something to do with it. But they're going to take over this land, even though other than, like you said, they want it for strategic purposes. When they take over the land, they have not decided to make it a cemetery yet. There's sort of this gap time before they start burying soldiers, as you mentioned, in 1864. One of the things this land is used for is to establish a freedman's village. This was established in June of 1863, although there were freedmen coming to this property even before then. But this is before this has officially become a cemetery. This is essentially a camp for what was called contraband. Uh, when we say contraband, we're talking about formerly enslaved people who have been captured or taken or freed by the United States Army. And they're in this sort of weird in-between gray area for the military. <laughs> So Lincoln can't free the slaves generally because that's takes like a constitutional amendment, spoiler alert, later on. But he can, as commander in chief, deal with all things military. So the second the South secedes, Lincoln's like, okay, any freed slave who can make it to the army lines, make it onto our side, will be free. And so guess what happens? Freed slaves start pouring towards the Union lines. Trouble is now they're kind of refugees and we need to figure out sort of where to place them physically. But that's kind of what happens in this Freedman village is going to be set up at what is now Arlington Cemetery. And it's run by the Freedmen's Bureau, which is a government agency that's established to deal with this situation of all these people, you said, flooding sort of the army lines. The army is going to hire the United States Colored Troops, as they were called during the Civil War, to basically protect these fugitive enslaved people and to help run the village. And this village is going to continue even after the Civil War ends. People start living there and they keep living there. And the government for about 30 years is like, okay, this is as good a place as any, I guess, for you guys to live. So this is a home for people and for generations of people. Now, most of the people who will call the Freedmen's Village home will end up being buried elsewhere. But today, if you were to visit Section 27 of Arlington National Cemetery, there are about 3,800 freedmen who are buried on what is today Arlington National Cemetery property. So I love this because it's a reminder, again, during the Civil War, that this land wasn't just sort of 
unused, pristine wilderness that was turned into a cemetery. This was living, working, breathing land, and it was people's homes for a long period of time. If you visit Section 27, you'll notice that the markers do say civilian or citizen, which I find really moving for people who fled enslavement to be buried in what is now such a, an honored place with the marker with the word civilian or citizen is really moving. It's an acknowledgement, right, that they aren't contraband, they're not property, these are people and they're citizens of these United States. Naturally, though, a lot of them are unnamed. The records today just do not make it possible. There's not enough documentation or record keeping and wasn't at the time period for us to do any real significant work on trying to put names. In addition to the freedmen that are buried there, there are also going to be about 1,500 U.S. colored troops that are buried at Arlington National Cemetery from the Civil War. They make make up about 10% of the Civil War soldiers that were buried at Arlington during the Civil War period. Most of them are in Section 27 or Section 23. Uh, You'll definitely notice the USCT markers because they have the Civil War shield on them. So they look a little different from our contemporary markers. And in the show notes, we'll put some images so you can see what we're talking about. Something to keep in mind, though, in this period is that Section 27, where the Freedmen's Village was, where a lot of these United States colored troops um, were buried, was considered the lower cemetery, and it was actually racially integrated initially. So it was sort of everybody's kind of buried together. This is the lower end. These are not our officers and stuff who were sort of setting aside in special places anyway. So it's kind of racially integrated by class and rank, but that is not going to be the case. When this is designated a national cemetery, it becomes segregated by race, just like the rest of the country, just like the rest of the military. And it is that way at Arlington National Cemetery until 1948. It also is worth mentioning Arlington today is a really honored place to be laid to rest. But at the beginning, it wasn't necessarily such an honorable place. It was basically a pauper cemetery at first. If you could not afford to have your body sent or your relative's loved one's body sent home for a burial wherever you lived, which was a cost of like $8,000, which is steep today, but particularly steep in the 1860s when the average weekly rate was like 25 bucks a week. So this was very dear. And so a lot of people couldn't afford that. And so they were buried at Arlington because it was just easier. Absolutely. And a lot of the early soldiers that are buried there, I mean, Meigs makes a, Montgomery C. Meigs makes a really concentrated effort to go to battlefields and places towards the end of the war and after the war to bring soldiers back. But at this point, you know, you got to figure, well, if your family hasn't come looking for your body or they couldn't afford to move you, this is kind of the next best thing rather than being kind of left where these battles were fought. But I think you're absolutely right. The people that were being laid to rest at Arlington in the earliest years were kind of more, I think, like pauper cemetery style. These were people whose families could not afford to put them somewhere else. And it wasn't established initially to be the exalted place that it is today. And so we're going to move on from the Civil War. I'm excited to talk about World War One at Arlington. This is World War One is particularly an interesting moment because you're still like deep in the midst of the Jim Crow era, but there's a lot of African-Americans who want to participate and sign up for the war and get shipped overseas in colored segregated regiments. And it's so fascinating. The one we're going to talk about is Henry Johnson. He's from North Carolina. We're not totally sure when he was born. 
like a lot of guys who joined the military, he lied about his age when he enlisted. So the date that is on all his records was probably not correct. We think maybe he was born in 1892, but he was definitely born in North Carolina. He's going to enlist in June of 1917, initially in the National Guard, but he's going to be eventually sort of lumped into what's going to become the 369th, uh, which is, they are amazing. They're going to get the nickname, spoiler alert, the Harlem Hellfighters, A, because they're from Harlem, and B, because they can fight like a, you know, Hellfighter really uh there it's a colored regiment all african-americans and they're given no combat training and basically sent over to france and the u.s army is like yeah we got these guys and you know they're here and we're deeply segregated and they're very racist maybe the french you guys can do something with them and the french who are also racist uh, but less significantly, like they don't have really experience with African-Americans because they're French. They're like, all right, we'll put these guys to work. And they do. And there's so many great stories of the 369th. For one story, they notice that there are some musicians in the group and they can really play. And so they're going to put together a jazz band. And this is 1918. France has been destroyed by four years of the war. And so what better to do than send the jazz band all around France and do like concerts to get people excited to get spirit back for the war. And that's exactly what these guys do. Jazz is taking over like this sort of uniquely American art form. And they're going to whip up support all over France for this war. There also are going to be the, the rest of the infantry, the 369th are going to be the first black combat troops to join the French army at the front which is kind of cool and very impressive. And they're the longest frontline service of any regiment in the U.S. military. They stayed in the trenches for 161 days, which is just shy of six months. It is very cool. I agree. It's impressive. It also is telling. You're going to take what was essentially started as a National Guard unit that was trained to do hard labor that got almost no combat training. And when General John Pershing who really wants to keep U.S. autonomy. America's joined the war, but he is very um, specific about where American troops are going, and he doesn't really want to put Americans on the front if he can avoid it because, you know, he's not he's not sending our good old boys to be cannon fodder. And yet when many white soldiers refuse to fight alongside black soldiers, uh, when these troops face harassment and terrible treatment, Pershing sort of sees a solution to this problem by sending these guys to the front, which is no easy task. So it's really, to me, sort of this dual story of just how impressive the Harlem Hellfighters are because they're at the front, like you said, just shy of six months. They, as we're going to talk about in a moment, are incredible fighters, but they're also really sent to be cannon fodder. They're sent to go do the job that no other American troops want to do and that no other American military leader wants to put those troops in that kind of harm's way. So it is, I think, telling about attitudes during World War I when it comes to our service members. So it's a very different experience from World War II. In World War I, you're getting uh, still location-specific regiments. So notice it's the Harlem Hellfighters. Once the war is over in sort of the interwar period, the U.S. Army kind of reconfigures itself. And by World War II, they're going to select men from different places all around the country and put them in the same regiment. So if you ever watch, for example, my pop culture reference for you, Becca, if you ever watch like Band of Brothers, 
you're going to see guys who are from Georgia and South Carolina with North Dakota and California and Washington state. So they're all in the same regiment. So they meet people who are not like them, including African-Americans. That hasn't happened yet by World War I. By World War I, it's still, you're with the guys that you grew up with, the Harlem Hellfighters. These are all guys from the same neighborhood. The guys from your hometown. Exactly. And so the part of the reason that they do away with this, FYI, is because if your town, like the regiment from your hometown, gets into a tough scrape, you could lose like 50% of the eligible young men in your town, and then they get wiped out. So there's... a a lot going on here, but a lot of these, a lot of white troops, you still, again, in the midst of the Jim Crow era, they're going to refuse to fight alongside these African-American troops. And the African-American troops, the Harlem Hellfighters, in addition to being the longest tenure at the front lines, they're also going to receive harassment, threats, bad treatment. So it isn't enough that they're in a trench. And imagine being in a trench for just shy of six months. It's terrible. And you're having to deal with harassment and threats and unequal treatment. So the Harlem Hellfighters are really fantastic. And there's a few of them buried at Arlington. So yeah, so we started talking about Henry Johnson. He's going to become a sergeant with the Harlem Hellfighters. He's going to go to the front, be entrenched at the front with the French army in May of 1918. He's out there doing his thing on a patrol and there's a German raiding party. That's going to come a call in and he is going to take care of it with his rifle and knife. He basically prevents the capture of all of his fellow soldiers based on the men he saved said he fought off as many as 35 Germans. He's got a rifle and a knife, but some of these guys, he's literally just fist fighting, just bare fist, knuckle drag fighting. He's going to kill at least four Germans, if not more, wounds several, and most of the rest of them are going to run away because they're done. So he single-handedly is going to fight off a whole team of men, saving the lives of his fellow soldiers, and it's going to earn him a nickname called Black Death, which is kind of badass. And of course, the American military... (laughs) (laughs) The American military is never going to shy away from good press and good propaganda. So they're going to make sure that his story, when it gets up to the upper ranks, they're going to make sure the story is in the Saturday Evening Post. People back at home are going to read about how this brave young black man from Harlem fought off these Germans. He's going to be awarded the Crux de Guerre, the French cross, which I'm terrible at saying. Maybe Rebecca can say it better. Croix de Guerre. Sure. Eight years of French. What are you going to do? He's the first American soldier to receive the Croix de Guerre. There you go. Yeah. Which is very impressive. And so, you know, Henry Johnson comes home and he's got a, a medal on his chest. Notice it's not an American medal. He, he doesn't get decorated by us. The, I mean, the French are lovely and they're wonderful. And it is really wonderful that they gave him a medal. But again, he's not being decorated by the U.S. military. And now I'll stop. So he comes home. French medal on his chest. He and other Harlem Hellfighters are invited to march in a victory parade in New York City. And then Henry Johnson is invited to go on a lecture tour. Again, the American military loves itself a good patriotic story, loves itself a little military propaganda. And so they want him to go around and talk about his experience. So he does. But the truth is, war is hell. Um, These men came back with with post-traumatic stress disorder. Trench warfare was horrific. And you add to that his unique experience of being an African-American man, all the harassment and and vile treatment that he had to deal with. And so when he's in St. Louis talking to a mostly black audience, he veers off script 
And he tells it like it is. He talks about the racism he faced. He talked about the abuse that black soldiers face, some from their white officers. And all of a sudden, the army is not such a big fan of Henry Johnson anymore. They're going to issue a warrant that is going to basically call him out for wearing his uniform beyond the prescribed date of commission. Now think for a minute. All the veterans parades and things you've seen in movies or maybe you've attended, and you have veterans wearing their uniforms. Those are past the prescribed date of commission, but we don't go around arresting veterans for doing that. And yet they're going to use this hardly ever enforced rule to crack down on Henry Johnson. This is really going to be where his story takes a sad turn. It's going to be very difficult for him to find work. He is going to die essentially penniless and mostly in obscurity in 1929 when he is only 36 years old. And his experience is not unique. There were men who had fought in World War I, black soldiers who would be beaten up for wearing their uniforms, who would be attacked for talking about their service. And again, they're coming back and we're at the height, as you said, of kind of Jim Crow America. We're at a point where race relations are sort of at the low point in the United States, the early 1920s into the 1930s. And it's exceptionally tough for these World War I veterans of color who come back. There has been some recognition of Sergeant Johnson in more recent years. He was awarded posthumously the Purple Heart in 1996, which is, you know, 80 years after the fact. He would get the Distinguished Service Cross in 2003. And then finally, in 2015, President Obama awarded him the Medal of Honor. So it has taken almost 100 years for Henry Johnson's military service to really be recognized and acknowledged at the level that it should be. And I would just like to say, the only thing I keep thinking about when we talk about Johnson is Audie Murphy. Like it's a similar story, except very different outcomes. And not that Audie Murphy doesn't deserve all the accolades because he totally does, but Johnson did too and had to wait 80 years to get it. Let's talk about Benjamin O. Davis Sr. and Jr. Jr. and Sr. Yeah, two. So this two Benjamin O. Davises. So Sr. and Jr. We're going to try to keep that straight. We're going to do our best. They're buried in the same section, too, to make it even like more confusing. They're buried in the same section at Arlington. Benjamin O. Davis Sr. obviously was there first, being the older. uh, And he is buried in a government issue headstone, like exactly what you're picturing in your mind when you think of Arlington Cemetery. His son is buried on the top of like a crest of a small hill and he has a what's called a private marker. So his is made of obsidian. So it's this large, very black headstone. Um, It says Davis very prominently on it, Uh, but they are not next to each other, but very similar. And they are both pioneering African-American military heroes. Benjamin O. Davis Sr., His grave marker lists him as been born in 1877. Also his Wikipedia page and sort of like his general bios and stuff. But there is definitely reason to suspect that actually was not where he, when he was born. He was born in the district. So he's from Washington, D.C. And yay, local hometown heroes. Love it. But he's not marked on a census for a few years after that. They think he might actually have been born in 1880 and lied about his age in order to join the military early, which is not sort of uncommon. Uh, back then, record keeping wasn't that 
great. Uh, but either way, the army, just like we talked about with our Audie Murphy a few months ago, the army is going to bury you with the information that you provide to them, whether it is factual or not. He's going to volunteer for the Spanish American war uh, enlists as a private. He's going to fight in the Philippines and he goes everywhere in his, like he's all across the country. He's in Kansas at one point. Uh, he's a Buffalo soldier at one point. It's intense. He's in Utah. He's at the, at West Point and he keeps receiving postings. That means that while he's in command, he's not in command of white troops. So we're seeing this is the early 1900s, the 19-teens. This is a time where, as we talked about a little bit earlier in the episode, obviously we have a segregated fighting force. There's certainly an interest in having African-Americans serve. You know, it's seen as a way to kind of get them onto a good path. But despite the fact that Benjamin O. Davis Sr. is acing every officer test, he just has incredible marks on everything he's ever tested on, there's still a lot of racism and there's still a lot of belief that white soldiers will never follow the command of a black officer. And so we see this career that plateaus in a lot of ways. He goes a lot of places. He has a lot of postings, but he is not going to be a commander the way that a lot of his contemporaries are. He is... Uh, mentored by Charles Young, who we're going to talk about a little more with regard to his son. Uh, but Charles Young was one of the first African-Americans to graduate from the military academy at West Point. He is going to encourage him to do officer training, even when there are no black officers, almost no black officers in the military. He teaches military science at the Tuskegee Institute. Uh, he is at Wilberforce University, which is a majority African-American university in Ohio teaches military science and tactics. He is a lieutenant colonel in 1920 and a colonel in 1930. Uh, and on October 25th, 1940, he becomes the first African-American general officer in the United States Army. Yeah, what's exciting to me is as we get into World War II, we really see Benjamin O. Davis Sr. reach ranks that have up to this point been closed off to African-Americans. So he becomes a general and then a brigadier general, which is really impressive. He's going to be the commanding general of the 4th Cavalry Brigade, which is at Fort Riley, Kansas. He's going to come to Washington, D.C. to work in the office of the inspector general. He is going to be very much kind of the key point person for World War II, uh, overseeing black troops and working with the armed forces to figure out how are we going to send these troops into battle, even though they're segregated troops. Again, he's really advising on race relations, uh, making sure that this can be sort of a peaceful issue during the war. And one thing that sort of distinguishes, I think, Benjamin O. Sr. from some of the other figures we've talked about up to this point is he is decorated in his lifetime. So we do see some acknowledgement of his service publicly while he's alive, as opposed to even just a slight generation earlier, or even some of his contemporaries, where they're ignored when it comes to decorations and commendations. So um, President Harry S. Truman, when Benjamin O. Davis Sr. retires after 50 years of military service, Today, when we're talking about these guys and their service, it's usually 25, 30, maybe 35 years. Um, Benjamin O. Davis, from the Spanish-American War to World War II and beyond, is serving. President Harry Truman is going to make sure that he receives the acknowledgement he deserves, which includes uh, the Distinguished Service Medal and the Bronze Star. And his son sort of picks up the baton. Yeah, it's not too surprising that um, given the fact that he is career military to a T, you know, he really is the embodiment of career military service mm -hmm. that, of course, his son 
is going to follow in his footsteps. It's just kind of like, like father, like son. Exactly. Uh, Benjamin O. Davis Jr. is also born in Washington, D.C., another local boy. Hi. He is going to be the first African-American general in the United States Air Force. But before that, he was in the Army because when he become, goes into the Army, the Air Force doesn't exist yet. Uh, he is going to graduate from West Point in 1936. And West Point is terrible and sounds awful for normal people, but for the, he was the only African-American in his class. His classmates are going to ignore him. He's only the fourth African-American to go through West Point in its history. And this is the 1930s. This is very much, even though West Point is in New York, this is Jim Crow America. This is a time where there's an expectation that these institutions are going to remain white only. You know, this he's not stationed somewhere in the Deep South. This is New York. And yet that racism is really just as prevalent. And he's mentored. We mentioned when we talked about his father, Charles Young, uh, who was mentor to his father and also mentor to the son. Charles Young was the third uh, African-American graduate of West Point, and he graduates in 1889. So there's almost 50 years difference between Charles Young graduating from West Point and Benjamin O. Davis Jr. in 1936. That's a long time. And it's really terrible. He's ignored. He has to eat by himself. He's very much ostracized. Nobody would room with him. He had no roommate because nobody would share a room, which I didn't think that was an option in the army that you could just be like, nah. No, I didn't think that was your option. I also can imagine like hazing is real at the military academies. They have to undergo a lot of training and stuff. And I can only imagine how much worse that must have been for him. Now, I don't know if he ever talked about this. It doesn't appear that he really says that he was singled out. But you got to imagine that that was a rough go of it, particularly his leave year, his first year must have been really terrible. And it really strengthens his determination, like rather than say, oh, well, they're getting the better of me. This is not what I want. Forget it. It really strengthens his determination to graduate. And he does. And it's really incredible to me. He is only in his, at the time, the fourth Black graduate of West Point. As you mentioned, it had been 50 years since Charles Young in 1889. Uh, You have to be sponsored for these military academies for admission by a member of Congress. He was sponsored by Congressman Oscar DePriest of Chicago, who at the time was the only Black member of Congress. So he, I think, knows that there's this incredible amount of expectation because of his father, his father's service, to have the endorsement of the only Black member of Congress. No matter how bad it is, he knows he can't drop out, right? There's this expectation of getting through. And it seems as though, despite all the struggle, by the time he graduates in 1936, he really has impressed people. Both people at the military academy, members of Congress are surprised that he was able to stick it out. And that tenacity is really going to serve him well through the rest of his career. He's going to graduate um, in 1936, 35th out of a class of 276 at the time he's commissioned, he receives his commission upon graduation. He is one of only two African-American officers in the army. The other one is his dad. They're the only two. That's it. The Davises. And he was, wants to be a pilot, applies to the army air corps and is rejected. Why is he rejected? Because he's black. He gets assigned to the 24th infantry, which is the original Buffalo soldiers at Fort Benning in Georgia. And again, this is the 30s in Georgia. He is not allowed inside the officers club at the base. It's all terrible. He's eventually going to teach military tactics at Tuskegee Institute. 
And the same as his father, they're going to put him there basically to avoid having uh, an African-American command, white soldiers. And then 1936, if you've done the math, this is only five years before we get into the Second World War. And he is going to be assigned to a training. He's going to, he wants to be, be a pilot. And that's what's going to end up happening. Uh, he's going to earn his wings in March of 1942, and he's going to go on to uh, an air squadron. He eventually will command uh, the um, Tuskegee Airmen, uh, and everybody's heard of the Tuskegee Airmen. So he's becomes he rises pretty fast, and um, before he's 30, he's in command of the Tuskegee Airmen. He is he remains in the military after the war. He's uh, uh, going to oversee, sort of help oversee the integration of the, the military. He helps uh, sort of implement that. He becomes a brigadier general in 1954. And when the Air Force is uh, established, he becomes their, the first African-American four-star general in the Air Force. So he is going to rise just as far as his father did and just as big a hero as his father did, which I think is really remarkable. One of my favorite stories for Benjamin O. Davis Jr. sort of comes from his time in World War II because he was commanding the 99th Squadron, but then he gets transferred to the 332nd Fighter Group, which was a larger all-Black unit not as elite as the Tuskegee Airmen, um, so they don't quite have the same stats that the Tuskegee Airmen had. He's he's doing the best he can, but he's going to kind of butt heads with General George Marshall. Uh, Marshall is going to basically want the 99th to be removed from combat operations, and Davis is like, wait a second, why do you want to remove us? And, you know, Marshall's going to say, well, there's deficiencies and they're performing poorly. And Davis is like, wait a second, that's not at all what we've been told and not at all what our data shows. So he actually holds his own press conference at the Pentagon and he defends his men. He goes up to the War Department, basically really says, look, we're holding different soldiers based on race to different standards and expectations. Um, we're, we're using different metrics for determining success. And so I really love the idea that Despite the fact that he is clearly in the minority in the armed services, very much in the minority for commanding officers, he is not afraid to stand up for his men. He's not afraid to stand up for their service. Uh, and he's not afraid to go toe to toe with George Marshall, who was not an easy guy to go up against. And I really love that about him. I think it's incredible to me that we can have a father and son both so remarkable in their service, just incredible military service, and then to both have them laid to rest very close together at Arlington National Cemetery. It's something I really like to point out on my tours when we're in that section. And of course, as you mentioned, nice, good local boys. <laughs> Moving a little bit along, I think one of the last people we wanted to mention for this particular episode comes from the Korea-Vietnam era, a man named Roscoe Robinson Jr. Roscoe Robinson Jr. was born in St. Louis, uh, Missouri, 1928. So he's really just a little bit younger than Benjamin O. Davis Jr. So he's coming just a little bit of, of a generation behind him. He's going to have a 34-year military career. He is also going to graduate from West Point just about 15 years after Benjamin Davis Jr. He'll graduate in 1951. Again, uh, at the time he goes to West Point, there are very few black graduates. He does talk about the experience he had being hazed, uh, having to deal with some really uh, difficult treatment. He graduates in 51 and he is sent right over to Korea. 
That is exactly where he goes. Um, we're right in the midst of the Korean War. He's a platoon leader and a rifle company commander, and he is going to be awarded the Bronze Star. When he comes back from Korea, he's sort of evaluating his career, decides his best bet is to be an instructor. So he's going to be an instructor at the Army Infantry School. He'll go to officer school, uh, and he's going to get a master's degree. Now, at this point, he could probably have settled in and kind of kept his career doing tactics, doing military instruction. But in 1967, we are really ramping up in the Vietnam War, particularly from an air perspective, putting more and more attention into fighting this from the sky. And so he is going to be deployed and serve as a battalion commander in Vietnam. He is going to be awarded a Legion of Merit, a Distinguished Flying Cross, 11 air medals, which you get one air medal for an act of incredible heroism, and he gets 11, and two silver stars. So he's not as many men at this point in his career could have been coasting sort of along from a commanding perspective. He is in the air. He is he is really in the midst of fighting in the Vietnam War, which is a lot. I'm still like kind of blown away by the 11 air medals. <laughs> like I had to double check my research like twice to be like, is that right? Because that seems like a lot. <laughs> It's a lot. That's a big number. Finally, post-Vietnam, he sort of is going to end the combat phase of his career, and he's going to be stationed to serve at the National War College in Washington, D.C., which still exists today if you are like me and looked for stuff to watch on Netflix during quarantine and watched Madam Secretary. That's where Tim Daly works for a while at the National War College. But it is in Washington, D.C. It still exists today. He will become uh, Roscoe Robinson Jr., the first black commander of the 82nd Airborne Division, a very famed division in the United States Air Force. Uh, and then his final sort of military assignment is to be the United States military representative to the NATO Military Committee in the 1980s. So this is a man whose service spans from the Korean War all the way up through the Cold War in the 1980s, which is really remarkable to me. He will become the the first black service member in the army to attain the four-star rank. The first in the U.S. military is Daniel Chappie James Jr. He's the first four-star general to be black, but Roscoe Robinson Jr. will be the first in the army and the second in the U.S. military. And he is laid to rest uh, at Arlington National Cemetery. And this is the tip of the iceberg for Arlington National Cemetery as in terms of so many things. There, are, Like I said, there are so many people Whole episodes could be done on, for example, we didn't even mention Medgar Evers. Medgar Evers is buried at Arlington Cemetery, civil rights leader. We will one day do a full episode on Charles Young. We really just touched on him as a mentor, but his life story is so incredible. Uh, I'd love to do a whole episode on, on his life. We will link in the show notes. We do have... Um, a self-guided tour of Arlington National Cemetery that highlights some of these figures, but some additional African-American figures at Arlington. So we'll be sure to link to that as well. But this is just a touch, as Rebecca said, of, of some of the incredible heroes who are laid trust at Arlington. Uh, some of the people who called Arlington home before it was ever a military cemetery. Arlington is, at the time of this recording, open to visitors, although some parts of the cemetery are not accessible at the moment. But if you're in the region, if you're looking to get out, do something outdoors, I really recommend Arlington. People, I think, if you're local, sometimes think there's nothing there for you, or if you don't have some, uh, if you don't know anyone personally buried there, that there's no reason to visit. But there are some really, really incredible stories. Um, and again, we can, we'll drop a self-guided tour uh, for you in the show notes if you're interested in doing that. Do you want to tell the nice people what else we have coming up? 
So we have a whole slate of African-American history stories for you in February, and then March is Women's History Month, and we have a whole slate of stories about uh, incredible women, and I'm really excited because these are going to be some fun episodes. Uh, We are going to talk about the first two African-American senators in American history. We're going to talk about uh, Barbara Jordan, who's uh, like Becca's hometown hero. And we're going to talk about Francis Perkins and labor history in March. There's discussion about Pocahontas. It's going to be really great. Other things too. It's going to be great. We also are, um, we're doing a a drive. We want to get uh, subscribers and people interested in the pod. So uh, we are doing a carrot and a stick kind of thing. We are going to, uh, we want to talk about first ladies. I think that'd be really fun. And uh, so what we're going to do is if we get a certain number of uh, new subscribers, um, we are going to do a series about first ladies and we're going to let the subscribers, our patrons vote on which first ladies they would most like to uh, hear about. So If you have friends uh, that like history, and who doesn't like history, really, uh, tell them all about us um, and um, make sure they subscribe and join Patreon, and we will pull together some uh, First Lady stories, and I'm particularly excited about a few of them. Yes, so we love our patrons. We want to thank our existing patrons, but we're hoping to grow our patron program. So tell a friend, tell five. Um, It doesn't matter what level you become a patron at. As soon as we reach our goal number of patrons, we're going to release a special series just on the First Ladies in addition to our regular episodes, and patrons will get to vote. Uh, They'll get access to all of that in advance, plus maybe some other little goodies, uh, maybe some more discounts. We'll probably reopen our merch shop this spring. So that'll probably be something special for patrons. So tell your friends, be sure to become a patron. If you're not a patron, that's okay too. We love all of our listeners. Make sure you're liking and subscribing and commenting uh, wherever you watch your podcasts. Be sure to join us on social media. We're at Tour Guide Tell All on Facebook and Instagram and at Tour Guide Tell on Twitter. Uh, we love engaging with you guys. We love getting your suggestions. Our whole idea for a first ladies series came from our wonderful Twitter followers who kept tweeting us all the first ladies they wanted to see episodes on. So um, please pitch us. We're outlining our episodes for the spring. So we'd love to hear your ideas. You can always email us at tourguidetellall at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much for listening, engaging, and we will be back soon. Thank you guys. Bye. Bye. I'm your host, Candon Arseniega. Dan King and I do the intros, the editing, the admin. Becca Grawl and Rebecca Fackner do the research and the talking. We are all guides for free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. This is Tour Guide Tell All. Until next time, 